Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with friend of the firm and fan favorite, Mike Maples. Uh, Mike, thank you for coming back on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I wanted to have you on to talk about mental models as it relates to company building, uh, venture investing, uh, also you know, tropes in startup and venture and, and what's, uh, what's no longer true or what's changed. So, so the first one I have is, a, is an idea my friend Zach Cantor uh, put to me, which is I uh, believe that the low-hanging fruit uh, has been picked. Uh, and now that software is eating the the built world, um, you know, before it was social networks, it was things that everyone was was an expert in. Um, but today, uh, a lot of low hanging fruit has been picked, and now domain expertise is required more than ever. Uh, healthcare, fintech, um, other sort of industries where where software is eating. Um, does that resonate with you? Because the, the counter that Keith Boyd say is, well, uh, expertise has prevented people from, from trying these uh, new things in, in these sectors. Um, what, what's your take on sort of the low-hanging fruit and uh, the role of expertise as it relates to founders? Yeah, well, I guess the, the, thing, the thing that I find, the, the number one mistake I find with starting a startup is it's a paradox, which is don't try to think of a startup. And so the best founders that I've seen, and this is one of the reasons I wanted to do the podcast, was the best founders I've seen are living in the future already. Yeah. And so they're, what, they're, what they're really doing is they're seeing the future before other people do. And then what they do is they notice something that's missing in that future. And then they build something to fulfill what's missing. And then they bring forward the future to the rest of the world by persuading them to kind of join their movement. And so um, is domain knowledge required? Well, I like to refer to it as obsession. Yeah. And so like a lot of people, when they think of the word obsession, it rubs them the wrong way or it sounds like a cologne or something. But like for me, obsession is I went down the rabbit hole in a field that's new, that's living in the future. And I just, I couldn't stop thinking about it. It's the, it's the last thing I think about when I go to bed. It's the first thing I think about when I get up in the morning and in, in the path of pursuing my obsession, I noticed things that were missing. Yeah. And what I find is that when you look at startups that way, your intuition is much more likely to be right. Whereas yeah. the, the problem that most people run into is they try to think of a startup. And so rather than get out of the present, they're in the present and they're trying to find white space in the present. They're trying to find holes in current markets. And when they have ideas, they sound plausible to normal people. But the, the idea isn't to do something that apl- that appeals to plausible, normal people. Yeah. And so, yeah. So I guess, you know, I don't, I don't know that that ag- agrees or disagrees with uh, either one of those guys. But I think that lots of expertise in a current field can become conventional wisdom. Right. But new expertise in a new field that's an obsession can become, you know, super powerful. Yeah. That's an interesting way to think about it. You had Steve Steve Blank on the podcast, and he talks about obviously you know getting outside the building, uh, you know being customer obsessed. Where are you in sort of these? You know Steve Blank, Eric Reese on one side, and then sort of uh, you know Steve Jobs other side of hey the customer doesn't know what they want, um, and you know I would have if I listened to the customer I would, you know what was the Henry Ford line I would have built a faster horse or something. Yeah, well I look at it like first of all a startup's not a company. And um, it, now hopefully it'll someday be a company. 
And I think it has to hack its way through three distinct miracles. And so the first hack I like to call the insight hack. And an insight hack is a result of living in the future, noticing what's missing, and coming up with an insight that's surprising that most people wouldn't agree with or even understand. And having a, an insight that's non-consensus and right is critical because otherwise, um, chances are incumbents have already tried it or they can easily try it. Yeah. And so what you're trying to do is find a secret and then find early customers, investors who are in on that secret with you. And so I like to say insight development is done when you're able to answer the question, am I ready to start? Am I ready? Do I have a disruptively powerful enough idea and an insight uh, to, to go start this thing? And I would say that one of the big mistakes that founders make in my experience is they don't realize that they have to be good pickers too, that they, they it's even more important. They only get one shot. They only have a portfolio of one company. So like their, their startup is the only startup. And so rushing the pick, I, I find to be very, very dangerous and problematic. And so then once you decide you're ready to start, you get into customer development. So like to me, insight development is get out of the present. Customer development is get out of the building. And in customer development, what you have to practice is your skills as a, as a startup artist. And so you're more of a jazz band than a marching band. And you, you have an idea of the tune you want to play, but you also in, in a dance with a customer sort of construct a riff on the fly as you improvise. Yeah. Yeah. And so to me, um, you know, customer development, starts out value hacking you're trying to figure out what can i build that's unique that people are desperate for and then and then you you finish value hacking when you answer another question which is am i ready to grow and then when you're ready to grow you flip from zero to one invent something out of nothing to one to x you know predictable pattern uh growth machines that have gears that operate in harmony with clarity and where, where are you on the debate? Uh, there's sort of Reed Hoffman on one side, if you, if you aren't embarrassed by your product when you launch it, it's too late or something like that. And then there's the Steve Jobs, you know, hey, we're only releasing this when it's absolutely perfect. Where, where are you on that spectrum? Yeah, well, I, I think that it, it really depends on the market that you're in. But I think that St Steve Jobs, I always find to be a challenging entrepreneur to compare things to, right? Because the guy introduces this thing called the iPhone that reinvents the phone. And, you know, most people would say, well, when you introduce a new product, you got to find the innovative customers, then you got to capture your early niches and expand from that. And like, I don't know, I can't reconcile that with the iPhone. But like the, for me, the more typical success pattern is what Reed's saying. You know, the more typical success pattern is you've, you've unlocked an insight that's so powerful that there's a set of people when they see it, they say, where have you been all my life? And they're pulling product out of you. So as a result, they're willing to tolerate the pr fact that your product is half done because you're the only person showing up with the thing that they're desperate for. Yeah. And so they'll let you lay tracks in front of the train, you know, as you, as you incrementally improve the product. So we did another episode where we talked about value hacking, growth, ha growth ha uh, hacking, and that's a fantastic episode. I want to talk to you about uh, insight hacking sure. because, uh, you know, uh, entrepreneurship is, is more popular than ever. And so we have more, more people who believe that they could be entrepreneurs which is a great thing, which also means that the, uh, and the barriers of starting a company are low, which also means sometimes that they don't have the idea before they want to be an entrepreneur. And so more and more people are, are comfortable taking the leap without having an idea and having to go through sort of a methodical uh, insight hacking process. So I don't know if, if, if you have EIRs, uh, but you've certainly worked with people who are thinking, hey, uh, I just left Facebook and I think, you know, crypto is cool. I, th you know, I'm excited about consumer social, but um, 
I don't know how to think about, you know, the next three to six months in terms of getting my idea, in terms of having a framework for, for thinking about it. How do you help people navigate idea mazes or even think about frameworks for, uh, for, for insight hacking or, or comparing, you know, insights in a different space, where to look even? Yeah, so my favorite examples, you end up not having to be concerned about that because you have somebody like Mark Andreessen who invented the browser to fix what wasn't working with the internet. And Mosaic and then later Netscape became his vehicle to just continue working on what he was interested in working on, right? So that's to me, that's the ideal. That's how Gates started Microsoft or Jobs started Apple. But let's let's say, okay, that's that's easy, but but not everybody has lightning strike them with their obsession. Let's say I do want to start start up and be premeditated about it. Uh, there is a process I think can work. So the first thing I encourage people to think about is what is the change event? So still waters are bad for startups. Startups win in chaotic, messy, wave-filled, current-driven waters. And so that requires a change event that's bigger than the startup itself. And I found that there's two types of change events. One could be a technology inflection. That would be like, okay, so when we invest in Lyft, the the, the GPS locators and cell phones had just gotten good enough that you could locate the car on a map within a block. But if you'd tried to do it much before that, you could have been right, but you would have the, the, the technology wasn't ready for you to do it. And then the other type of uh, inflection is an adoption inflection. And so back to the Lyft example, enough people had smartphones that you could count on the fact that anybody who wanted to drive would have a smartphone. Anybody who wanted to ride had a smartphone. And so what I, what I challenge people to do when they're doing insight hacking is to, is to say, look, you know, rather than think of yourself as a scientist doing experiments like you would in customer development, think of yourself as a time traveler trying to go into the future. And like what futures are out there that feel valid? And futures that are out there that feel valid have to leverage some type of an exponential change event that's going to cause you to come up with an insight that would not be applicable today, but it's going to be applicable in the future. Right. And so then you, then what the next step I find is to find people who are living in the future already yeah. and spend time with them and try to find what I call billion dollar secrets. Yeah. And then over time, you know, you, you amass a list of hopefully contrarian insights that are driven by these change events. And then quite often the, 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 the you get visited by the muse and the, the, the startup idea reveals itself. Yeah. You've been doing this for, for a couple of decades now. How do you think about market timing? Because being early is just as bad as being wrong in, in some senses. And if you're living in the future, sometimes you're living too soon in the future. Uh, has that happened to you? Have, you? have you been on spaces that just didn't come yet or, or haven't come yet? And Oh, yeah, all the time. And, and you know, we, I, think, I think you mentioned earlier in this podcast the notion of an idea maze, right? So the, the, the thing that I like to assume is every startup idea has been tried. And so, you know, like even Netscape, Mark was living in the future, but he goes to the library and he studies like Vannevar Bush from the 1940s and sci-fi novels and stuff. And so most ideas have been tried by somebody. So the, the question is not whether nobody's ever had your idea before. The question is, is it the right time for your idea to happen? And so Balaji Srinivasan, uh, who's now, I think he just left Coinbase. He's now at a crypto venture fund paradigm. He coined this idea, the idea maze. And what, what you try to do is you try to say, I'm going to make an honest attempt to look at every, every experiment with this product idea I have that's been tried. Yeah. And, and 
what were the assumptions behind it and why did it fail and why am I having a different assumption or why is the world different that could cause it to succeed? But like too many ideas start at the beginning of the idea maze and the idea for what it is, whereas traversing the idea maze requires you to, to ask a whole bunch of questions as you branch down the maze. Oh, I think that my video rental service is going to be uh, pay for the DVD. Yeah. Well, you know, should I do it by the DVD or should I charge a subscription? Right. You know, I think it's going to be in the mail versus streaming. Okay, well, who's attempted to stream video before? Yeah. Why did it succeed? Why did it not succeed? And did it not succeed because the founders didn't execute, because the technology wasn't ready? What was the reason? Yeah. And so the idea maze has, has this quality of uh, honestly assessing whether your idea has the correct why now. Yeah. And how important is it that the idea is sort of non-obvious or contrarian in the sense that other investors don't want to touch it versus things that are obvious, but perhaps you know, sort of execution oriented, maybe like scooters. I don't know if you got involved in the, in the scooter game at all. And, and maybe that's not obvious, but how do, you, how do you think about that? So I'm a pretty big fan of non-consensus and right. So my basic belief is that if an, the more consensus an idea is, the more likely it's A, either been tried and just failed because it wasn't a good idea, or B, it's something that an incumbent's already doing or an incumbent's already doing a version of. Yeah. And so the interesting thing is when you have a new product, most of the great ideas are disliked by 80% of the people. And so what you're trying to do is find the people who value your advantage and who believe the secret that you believe. And then you, you say, we're going to start a movement together and we're going to convince the world that our point of view is correct over time. Right. But the movement starts out with a small set of people and then gradually gets bigger as more people join the movement. Yeah. And so that's that that is more typically the model that I see. It's a it's a movement started by rebels right. who then convince the world that their way is the right way. And and do you have a framework for evaluating some of these emerging technologies or platform ships, whether it's VR or crypto or or I don't know, some biotech stuff. Uh, I'm not sure that you guys are doing biotech, but how to entrepreneurs should be thinking about, hey, maybe now is the, the right time for, for some of these things or. Yeah, well, we have a bunch of, you know, there's a blog that I really like called Farnham Street, which talks about mental models. And most of the mental models on Farnham Street are about value investing and avoiding mistakes and making better decisions in day-to-day life. But what I'm interested in is mental models for startups. And what I find is there's a crucial difference. So in, in most businesses, because they're companies, the value investing mental models are about tools to cope with our own ignorance and, and yeah. tools that allow us to avoid systemic bias or, or um, things that would cause us to, to act in ways that are against our interests but emotionally feel good. To me, value investing, so, so you know, value investing it basically looks at risk as you don't know what you're doing. And so stop doing what you don't know what you're doing and, and tell you know what you're doing. Whereas to me, uh, seed and startup is about what risks are worth taking. And take is a verb. It's an active verb. And so um, for me, it's, it's less about the particular market and it's more about the mental models around, around startups. And so at Floodgate, we've compiled probably about 20 or 30 of these. And so one of them would be the idea maze, one of them would be the earned secret, one of them's the why now, one of them is the flippening, one of them is the sword of the shield. And so, you know, we have probably a dozen or so um, what we call insight models, yeah. and then we have a dozen or so founder models. And so, you know, the, the, the MacGyver gene we find important in founders, uh, we find uh, 
the artistry of the composer important. We find um, the builder and the persuader to be important. And so what we try to do is, and no startup has all of these things, yeah. but since a startup isn't a company, I mean, when we when I invested in Twitter, they didn't know what to call it. When I invested yeah. in Twitch, it was Justin TV. Lyft was Zimride. If you'd cared about what the business was or the company was for what it was at the time, you wouldn't have done it. You would have made the wrong choice. Yeah. So what mattered in those cases was the quality of the founders and the quality of their insights. And so what we try to find is ways to um, ways to kind of tease out signals of a good insider, or a good founder. Yeah, and let's um, let's go through some of the, some of those mental models for 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 co-founders. Yeah. Um, what um, what are things to avoid or things that you like? You know, there are some some people say you want people with complementary skill sets. Some people say, well, if you actually double down on your unfair advantage, um, uh, maybe it makes you a stronger founding team. Some people say you need to know each other for a long time. Some people say, hey, if you just met but align on values, that that can work. How, how, what are your views on picking co-founders? And I, I talked to you from the lens of. You know, I, I run OnDeck, which is a community for people looking to start or join their next company. And because of the, you know, it's it's always best when you have the Mark and Jason like insight. But because more and more people want to be entrepreneurs these days, and it's harder to have that insight, and it's the barriers to starting are are, are lower. More people are are coming to start companies without co-founders, without ideas, and having to create frameworks or use your frameworks for for how to find right co-founders and, and right idea. The, to me, the the important thing, and this is this is what I learned from Steve Blank more than anybody else, is that startup teams starting with the founder are artists more than they are business people. And so artists have a few qualities. One is they can sense things that the rest of the world can't see. Um, so like artists just have a sensitivity that, that most mere mortals don't have. But then the, the other thing that artists can do is they can move people to act in ways that aren't logical. And so when I think about a great startup team, what you want is it's almost like you want the composer artist, and that's the founder or the founders. And then the startup team, it, it needs to look more like the people in an improv New Orleans jazz band. And so like in the, you know, when that startup composer person starts to go on a riff, the New Orleans jazz band isn't saying, oh, those notes aren't on my sheet of paper. They say, oh, that's kind of cool. I'm just going to go along with it. And, and I'm going to also make up my own riff. And I'm going to also improvise my own piece of, of the band. And that's why every great startup outcome is a singular event. Like that tune is never going to be played again that exact way. Yeah. So, you know, when you have a startup team, you have to have a compelling composer artist who attracts against their own rational logic, a set of New Orleans improv jazz band types. Mm -hmm. And then you have to like create this magical melody that people are desperate for, that people say, wow, I've never seen anything like that before. But, the, but artistry, I find describes those traits way more than the typical skills of engineering business, you know, things that you can take a course to learn how to do. Yeah. It's interesting. So YC was sort of founded on, on this idea that uh, there's an arbitrage of young technical founders who the market doesn't, um, doesn't price uh, or doesn't understand. Um, what is there sort of a similar insight today on different types of, of, of folks that can be founders or is it, is it pretty, um, you know, everyone's a founder. <laughs> um, or I guess, how do you think about that insight and other opportunities for arbitrage of, of, of type of types of people or ideas that the market isn't pricing well? Yeah, I mean, I guess to me, the, the, the thing that the market isn't pricing well right now is what I would call pre-product market fit startups by first-time founders. Mm -hmm. And so, 
what what is happening is as fund sizes get bigger, people don't want to write big checks for somebody that has no customers or no market or no product yet. But I but like for me, if if we're going to matter and have good returns in our market, we we have to develop intellectual property and unique insights about how to find those companies and know their potential energy when we see them. So I'd say that to me that that that's the place that you can still find alpha yeah. is companies that don't have any lagging metrics yet and have to perform all the leading activities in front of them to produce something. Right. And so, you know, Andy came on your podcast and he talked about the four, uh, you know, um, metrics of, 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 of product market fit or four ways to know that you have it. What, what are ways to know that someone might have it <laughs> or could have it in six months from now or, or how, how are you sort of... So I don't know if there's a way to know, right? I think it's more like... You, you hope that this founder is like Picasso and you say, I'm going to fund your set of paints yeah. and you believe in their artistic vision. Yeah. But like, is, is Picasso going to paint a Cubist painting or is he going to paint Guernica? Yeah. Heck if I know. Right. But like allowing myself to let go of needing to know yeah. is empowering, right? So like when you, when you kind of say, look, you know, the, the thing I've learned about startups is Everybody wants the huge upside of startups, but most people don't really want to take the risk involved in getting that upside. And taking the risk means letting go of the fact that you can know what it's going to be. It means letting go of the idea that some things have to be clear yet. Whereas if if you believe that you're backing a, a valid artist with a unique insight, a lot of times they'll surprise you with what they come up with. In your portfolio, there are a number of examples. One of them is Justin TV, right? Uh, they had insight uh, around sort of uh, you know new emerging behavior around live streaming and and that did uh, you know originally it was just Justin putting a camera over his head and then they found out that gaming was was the space where it was most applicable or is that how you yeah describe Justin it? TV is perfect example so 2007 the Weebly guys this ended up being a profitable two hours the Weebly guys right as we shook hands to do the investment they said we invited our buddy Justin Khan to come in and pitch you do you have time. So he walks in this coffee shop. He's got a camera on his baseball cap with wires going into a backpack. It looked like he had like a bomb or something in there. And he sits down. He says, I'm Justin Kahn. I'm going to live stream my life, Justin TV. And um, I'm like, I'm like, come on, Justin. Like, that's stupid, right? That's just silly. But, but like, what is in your backpack? And how do you do that? And so he explained to me that they had this team of four people and that they had a couple of really technical guys like Kyle, uh, who ended up starting Cruise, and that the internet is a hostile networking environment for video. And so I thought, you know, live video over the internet, that feels to me like something that's going to happen. That feels like an insight, and the way they've solved it feels like something that not a lot of people are going to figure out. And these founders, you know, one of the one of the things we've come to know through time, they're anti-fragile, right? They can live together in an apartment for next to no burn forever. And so um, I, I wish I could get credit for knowing that it was going to become Justin.TV Games, which became Twitch. But really, what we got right there was understanding that it didn't really matter right. whether or not Justin was going to live cast his life in the fullest time because they iterate their product every two weeks yeah. and they could live forever. Right. And so the question was, did these guys have the stuff and was yeah. it a valid insight? And that's why I, I really, similar to you, you know, uh, the in the on-deck phase when people are, don't have their co-founders and don't have their ideas, it's way too early to invest. But what I like 
seeing is uh, seeing people. There's a great Mark Sister post: invest in lines, not dots. He was seeing people over six months or nine as they're sort of in that process, and then when they have their idea and their their team and they start shipping. Uh, and one thing I wish in investing is I'm with a founder and he's very he or she is very compelling. I'm like I wish I just had more data on you, more more time to see because you could just be a great salesperson. But in similar, you know, you see Justin TV team for long enough, you you learn that they're cockroaches. Uh, you learn that they're anti fragile, um, and so that's a thing that I uh, want to create more avenues to to have more time to. Well, and those guys had a really tight working relationship. So I am um, there are cases. You know, I'd say like Instagram, uh, Kevin Systrom and Mikey Krieger didn't know each other that well. And they ended up being almost like a perfect match. But, you know, if you were to profile them psychologically, the profiles would suggest that they'd be, that they'd get along well. And even in their case, they would do hacking of weekend projects and stuff having nothing to do with Instagram together just to see what it felt like to work together. And so um, I'm, um, but but all things being equal, I think when you're starting a startup, you're going to war together, and you got to know that you want to be in the foxhole with this person. You got to know it, yeah. Because there, it's impossible enough as it is, and a lot of these startups fail because the founders just they just can't see eye to eye on what has to happen. And is so a lot of like marriages, a lot of co-founder relationships break up. Is it because they end up picking the wrong co-founder? Is it because they don't you know communicate well or, or set of behaviors that if they did differently um, could could have changed things or is it because hey that's actually the nature of the game and sometimes people are good for the first uh, you know, part of the business but they've sort of outgrow their their, their roles outgrown them what's, what's your take on co-founder breakups well I think it's all of the above but I think that I mean there are so many ways for founder teams to get screwed up like so one one way that I've seen happen is you'll have one founder that treats the other founders kind of like their employees and that they're that the only reason I have you is because I don't know how to write this kind of code or get this part of the product done, but they don't really think of them as equals in any meaningful sense or, or even as co-founders in a meaningful sense. And so what ends up happening is that resentments build over time and there's this, there's this feeling that um, I'm a pseudo founder, not a real founder. So I've seen that, that failure mode. The other failure mode I've seen is recruiting people to be on a founding team who want to be in a marching band and not a jazz band. And so they want to do OKRs right away. They want to do a bunch of stuff that they believe worked at the last big tech company they were at. And, you know, marching band techniques don't work when you're a jazz band. And so if you're if you're like, well, you know, this is too ambiguous and you don't give me clear direction. I don't have enough clarity of my goals or expectations set usually that's not so much the founder not managing the situation well usually that's i have the wrong person right so product market fit is or this great uh, idea that explains you know when something is really working and and you should you know double down on it um and you've written and spoke about it what's sort of the, the the corollary for when you um you have an idea and you should pursue it so we all know people who've sort of you know been in idea exploration phase for years and you're like hey pick something and work on it but you mentioned earlier you don't want to rush into rush into it so when do you know that you have an insight that's that's really worth doubling down on i think it's when nobody can talk you out of doing it and so what what um you know it's funny i i remember even when i started floodgate um people would ask me well how did you know it was going to work and what would you have done if it had failed and you'd never been a vc before and the reality was that 
the the regret I would have had by seeing all these other folks do it yeah. and watching it happen and knowing it was going to happen would have been much more painful than yeah. failing. Yeah. And so you get to a point where you're just like, I can't not not do this. Yes. And and I think that if you're not at that point, and if there's anybody reasonable who can talk you out of it, you're probably not ready to do it. Like startups are just freaking impossible. Yeah. And um, I think that you've got to be you've got to have gone so far down the idea maze rabbit hole that even though people are skeptical, you know, like Reed Hoffman, he ran the idea of LinkedIn by Elon Musk and Elon Musk said, I don't think that's going to work. But the reasons that Elon gave for it not working were reasons that Reed understood that reflected that Elon didn't have as much knowledge of the idea maze as he did. So you want to seek out contrarian views from people that you really respect and you want to be able to summarize those views in a way that honors their perspective. But you also want to be able to find ideas where you're like, holy mackerel, this amazingly smart person, they don't even get it. We mentioned earlier that founders in in many ways have to think like investors when when picking their ideas even more so because they only have one shot on goal. Um, so let's talk about some investing mental models. Uh, one of which is, is 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 yours, which you say you you get paid for the risk that you take. Um, so what risks do you tend to be more comfortable taking than others? There's there's team risk, there's market risk, there's product risk, there's tech you know technology risk, timing risk. I mean, how, how do you sort of think about the risks you're comfortable taking or the risks you're you're not comfortable taking? Yeah, the the, the main risk that that I don't want to take is risks that suggest the founders aren't all in. And so when two of the three founders are still working at the companies that they're at, um, or if the best startups are going to happen, even if they can't raise the money and, and they're like, look, we're doing this and we'd love to have you along for this, but like, make no mistake, this is happening. And we're looking for the best co-conspirator we can find. And so I look at it like, just like with a founding team, you only want to start something with people you want to go to war with. I want to fund companies or startups in this case, where we're going to be in the foxhole together and we're going to go to war together and we're going to show the world that our crazy idea is the right kind of crazy. And if, 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 if those folks punk out and quit, they're not my peeps. You know, I I like people who are just like, if this, if, if, if our insight turns out to be right, this could be my life's work. We see a lot of companies uh, come in and say, "Hey, should I raise a, you know, 500k, 750k pre-seed, or hey, the market's good right now? Should I raise two million, three million? What's your sort of take on, you know, I guess lean startup versus heavy startup uh, in terms of how much money people should raise and, and be operating? Yeah, well, I think every company is its own snowflake, right? So every company should have its own capital strategy and investment thesis. So. One company that I think you guys might be involved with, it, with us is uh, Applied Intuition, right? Casser Yunus. Well, he's building software that customers are paying millions of dollars for that simulates autonomous vehicles. You can't deliver half a loaf to those customers, right? And so you're going to have to have a team of very technologically deep people, and you're going to have to have a product with a pretty large footprint, and you're not going to get many turns of the crank. So... You, it's pretty reasonable that you're going to raise $10 million is even before you've done anything, even well, at least before you product market fit. Whereas there are other, there are other things where the, the problem I see is the, the entrepreneur has a really great insight, but, but they haven't really found the product yet. 
And then the first thing they do is they go raise $3 million. And what they don't realize is now they've committed themselves to three to five years. Now, they don't know that yet, but the seed funders aren't going to say, oh, $3 million, easy come, easy go. Yeah. So these days I'm doing a lot more projects where I say to the founder, hey, why don't you take a quarter to half a million dollars in six to nine months? And if it doesn't work out, yeah. it's not a failed company on your LinkedIn profile. But like, why, why not raise money when you're willing to just go all in and you're just positive that your insight's right and just you've gotten way better data than you could possibly have now? So like I find a lot of companies, they're just doing a startup and it, like you said, it's easy to raise money. So they go raise $3 million and now they're, now they've committed themselves to three to five years behind a mediocre idea. Yeah. Let's get into the, the venture landscape a bit. One thing you've been pretty active in, um, in supporting and being helpful to is, uh, is the operator angel movement. So a lot of these micro funds emerging from, from people who are, uh, either full-time operators or, or running, uh, running small funds, um, how, how do you think about that movement? What, is, what does that movement mean for, for venture? And my, my question is, how do these firms, what, what happens to these firms in a few years? Do they transition into institutional capital and become full-time? Or can they run their small funds for, forever? Uh, how, how do you think about this? Well, I, I think it's a really interesting phenomenon. So how many scouts are there out there now in this world? Probably, I would guess if you took what Sequoia's done and First Round and with Dorm Room Fund and a few others of these groups, General Catalyst, Spark, all these people, let's imagine that there's on the order of a thousand scouts. Yep. So these operator angels or some people I've heard call them Super Angels 2.0, they've crossed an important line of demarcation. They've decided that they don't want to just invest a firm's money but they want to raise enough money to start to build a reputation for being an investor. And I think some of these folks will have it continue as a side hustle. And some folks will say, I just want to keep doing this. And maybe they'll, maybe they'll keep doing it until they stop doing it. Yeah. And I think some people will say, I, you know, I have ambitions of setting up a, like a bonafide seed fund, you know, 25 to $100 million and having it be my career and building a track record with LPs. And so I've decided that spending a lot of time with those people and helping them as best I can is uh, the, the right idea for us. Yeah. And so, and I think that when you're when you're kind of in our position, you have two fundamental choices you can make. One choice is you can be a vertically integrated multi-seed firm, and the problem with that, there's strengths in that for sure, but the weakness of that strength is you have to become greedy about ownership and you think of ownership as a zero-sum game and you don't want angels to get their pro rata and you do all this stuff. It, or the other extreme is kind of what we're pursuing, which we can do because we have a small fund, which is being an open systems uh, VC firm. And so I think I've surprised some of the operator angels because I've carved allocations for them and deals that we've done that they haven't seen yet. Yeah. And then I'll just say, hey, look, if, if you want to invest in this company, that's great. If you don't, that's fine. Um, and then I'll tell the entrepreneur if they don't want to invest, I'll just fill out the rest of the round. But like, I think too many of the VC firms right now, they say to all these super angels or operator angels, yeah, we want to work with you. We think you're awesome. And then it's like, so start showing me deals. Yeah. And I think that, that it's better to, to give before you try to get and just kind of expect that karma will work its way out. Right. And, you know, there are dozens of, the, of them forming, um, you know, five, ten years from now, are are they merging or, or, or can all of them grow? Or what happens to the surplus? Is there a great reckoning that's going to happen in the next you know, five, ten years in sort of the micro fund or, 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 or micro seed 
market, or how do you see it playing out? I'm not really sure. I think that that what'll happen is because you do believe there's too much capital, right? Oh yeah, but 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 like too much capital vis-a-vis operator angels is the least of the problematic part of this, right? Like, uh, so, but I guess the operator angels that win will have to do what everybody who wins does, which is come up with a strategy that's congruent with the amount of money they manage and that is reality-based. And what, what's happening with a lot of the operator angels right now is they're trying to get into every deal that's hot any way they can. But if you're investing $50,000 a company that's valued at 50 post, there's almost no circumstance where you can return any meaningful amount of capital doing that, right? And so they're gonna, the ones that win will have to decide that they really are investing and not just writing checks for hot companies. And some of them will, right? That's, that's, the, that's the challenge that faced me and Josh Koppelman and Steve Anderson back in the day when we were getting started with, with our seed funds. And so uh, I, think, I think some will succeed. But it'll be more of a function of what they do, I believe, than what the market does or whether there's some shakeout or any, anything like that. Yeah. Venture is one of those funny businesses where if you have a legitimate strategy and you execute it every day, competitors just kind of go away because they yeah. don't. You know, most people just don't. Yeah. So I want to tell you, there are two sort of, um, or there are a couple, uh, or there are a few, shows sort of um, heresies in, in, in venture. One is the... Not heresy, but controversial topics. One is sort of concentrated versus diversified portfolios or broad portfolios. Two is, um, you know, follow on versus putting all up front. The, the first one, and we've talked a little bit about this before, but I have a new angle on it. Um, so Angelus just came out with a post basically saying that if you're not in the, the best performing seed deals, uh, seed investors would increase their return by blindly. You'll be, get beat by people who blindly index into every credible seed deal because, you know, the amount of the you know, percentage of getting outliers is very small, et cetera. And so... Um, you know, people always give counters to that, but my, my one sort of example, YC does this effectively, right? They, they index the early stage market. They do 400 deals a year. They, they, they built a platform. I, my question, would you rather be YC or, or benchmark or YC or, or first round or, or, or obviously you'd rather be full gate, but yeah, well, there's a few, a few things embedded in that question, right? So the, the first thing is there's a subtlety in that angel list article, which is if you can't get into the very best seed deals, you'd be better off indexing and I'm, and I'm sort of like okay well hang on a second that is a very big if because I'd say if you're a seed fund and you can't get in the very best seed deals whatever you're doing is not what I call a business right, right? you may be a benefactor yeah. but like if you're a seed fund and you don't have an explicit strategy to, to get into one of the top 20 outcomes of the year in the seed round you don't have a business right. and so it kind of doesn't matter how you compare with anybody else because you're still a loser yeah. and, and now it's just comparing degrees of loserliness right and so like which is fine like like my dad um he does angel investing but he doesn't care what the returns are right. he just he just puts money into companies where he likes the team and just hangs yeah. out with them right but, but how explicit is the strategy other than Hi, the GPs are good pickers and they built brands and they've been doing it for, for some time. Because it's not like company building where you have data moats and you have all these proprietary technologies and stuff. But, but it's like, it's funny because the, the thing in common with Benchmark and YC is not their strategy, but the fact that each strategy does one specific thing, which is gives them an unfair advantage into getting into one of the top outcomes of the year. And it's like, if, if you don't have an unfair way to get into one of the top outcomes of the year, you simply will be unsuccessful, period. Yeah. And people don't want to hear that because it's an inconvenient truth, yeah. but it's the truth with no tricks. Yeah. And so any strategy 
that's compared to other failed strategies is no longer all of a sudden a good strategy. You know, you, you want to have a strategy that finds a way to get into the top 20 deals of the year because power law is real and uh, you have to, that's how you get paid for the risk you take. Yeah. Well, there, there's hundreds of firms, right? Uh, in, in reality, are there only like 10 or 20 firms that have an unfair advantage? And is that is the only unfair advantage brand? I think, I think brand is important. So one of our LPs said at one time that VC is like a lottery game where a small number of people seem to keep getting the winning tickets. <laughs> and so I think that's right. And, and um, why does the entrepreneur care about the VC firm's brand? Well, startups are impossible. It's, hard, it's impossible to recruit employees. It's impossible to get customers. It's impossible to get PR. And so a, a VC brand is like a bridge loan of your brand to the startup. And someday the startup will have its own brand. Lyft has its own brand now. It doesn't need Floodgate one iota. But I think we were probably helpful in the early days in, in terms of them recruiting and stuff like that. And clearly once they raise a Series A and beyond. Yeah. And so I'd like to say that like the founders care about the brand of the VC firm because it helps them overcome um, all the impossible odds on the way to saying yeah. no to impossible. Right. And there have been a lot of people who've tried to build moats sort of beyond beyond brand. They've tried to build proprietary sourcing strategies, proprietary uh, data around recruiting or proprietary you know, ways of diligencing um, using software, using you know, big platform teams like, like Andreessen. I mean, 10 years from now, um, do you still, if you think about the future of venture capital, do you, and you know, Angelus had all these big dreams of, of disrupting venture capital, and I, I don't think it has. I think it's been a sustaining innovation for, for venture capital. How, 10 years from now, are we still sort of playing a similar game where it's it's a small number of firms and, and they're probably pretty, it's it's you, it's Keith Raboy, it's first round, it's it's Sousa, it's, um, and maybe some new entrance, one of these operator angels who goes goes pro, but it's still more or less the same game, or is there something that's radically disruptive? Um, you know, it's funny. Uh, a lot of people thought YC was disruptive or AngelList was disruptive, but but I would assert that Benchmark and Sequoia's power increased during that phase of time, right? So, I really do think it's it, this is a business about what is my strategy to get to the top twenty companies, execute that strategy every day with integrity, execute and you win. And it's like because most people don't, and people come and go. But, but most of the people who come and go, it's not because of some macro industry level stuff. It's because they just, they just took their eye off the ball of what it takes to win yeah. and what they needed to do to do what it takes to win. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I, yeah. So going back to an earlier point, I like to say VC isn't poker because we, we don't all, we're not playing the same game. Like, right. Um, it's, it's about your ability to basically rig the game that, that you get all, all the best deals. And maybe now more than even 10 years ago, it's less that you know Sequoia picks WhatsApp and more that WhatsApp picks Sequoia. Um, you know, there's uh, a lot of, especially in the later stage, a lot of these things happen to be obvious. And now it's more about winning than it is about sort of picking the individual and see that there's different. But uh, uh, one thing I'm curious, most of these operator angels are probably saying, hey, I want to be um, first round of Floodgate or I want to be you know benchmark Sequoia one day. I think they're less saying I want to be YC. Uh, and you know, spray and pr- there's no positive version of spray and pray uh, metaphor in in Silicon Valley yet. YC is the highest uh, portfolio in the valley, and I, I think has the highest guarantee of being one of the 20 best uh, outliers. And yet, why is no one trying to compete with them? Yeah, well, I, there's a couple things there. So first of all, I think if you look at the number of billion dollar realized outcomes, I think that the the, the very top VC firms still are the champs, mm-hmm. and so. 
the thing that YC got right is they came up with a way to scale making a large number of bets. So like, for example, a typical angel, if you invest uh, $150,000 checks and you're, own, and you know, you're investing in this company at 10 to 20 post money, you have to pray, spray and pay, pray if you have $100 million under management. But YC, because they have this deal where they put in a tiny amount of money for 7.5% of the company, they can scale the number of companies that they invest in. So, so from a funding point of view, YC invented the first model where you could scale the number of companies you invested in and not spray and pray. Yeah. Now, the, 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 the thing that I think is the, I think YC has two interesting questions. One is, can they provide the same level of service and insight if these batches get super big? And then the other, I think, is when YC becomes a brand, are you able to attract as many of the rebels and are you attracting the sort of the conformists who want to have it on their resume and who kind of want to get it for the status as much as they want to get it for the reasons people originally did it. But I'm, I'm rooting for YC in both dimensions, right? So without YC, I wouldn't have been in Twitch. I wouldn't have been in Weebly. We wouldn't have done clever. We wouldn't be involved with Rappy. And so I have like, I'm an open guy, right? I'm, I'm a, a lover, not a fighter. And so I, you know, I'd love to see YC bring as many talented entrepreneurs out here as they can, and I hope that they want to do stuff with us. Yeah, totally. I, I, I did rap you as well, so I, I'm, I'm grateful. One thing I'm curious to go deeper with you on is uh, something that's not super well understood, and it's the relationship between VCs and LPs. We hear a lot about the relationship between founders and VCs. Uh, you know, there's this critique of uh, some people say that founders and VCs are there's some misalignment because. VCs are, you know, going for home runs or busts, and sometimes founders want to be able to sell their company for a hundred million or, or have some optionality for have life changing outcomes for them uh, that might not move the needle for VCs. And I think what people don't understand is that VCs' incentives also come from their LPs' incentives. Their LPs want their VCs to go, you know, uh, bigger busts in some sense. Like the LPs, everyone is diversifying upon someone else's concentrated strategy, right? Um, if, if VC said, hey, I have a strategy that reliably gets you a 1x or 2x every single time, and it's investing in hundreds of companies, they're like, no, no, we, we want you to shoot for a 5x or 10x because we're investing in a in dozen, uh, dozen VC firms. Uh, so I, there, there are a few questions baked in there. One is if you can unpack sort of what's less understood about how LPs think about inv- investing in VC, could you envision sort of like an indie VC uh, for, the, for the LP world? And then also I'm curious, like, why are the people who are investing in seed funds, um, you know, fund of funds and LPs and not you uh, like or, or, or other seed funds? Like you have a better chance of, you know, identifying the next floodgate or the next first round or uh, in, in the same way that founders are, you know, the idea between scouts is that they're better at identifying the next founders. They're closer to them than, than VCs. Uh, why aren't VCs investing in other seed funds? Well, I think some are. Yeah. Right. But um I, I don't really look at it that so so first of all like I always go back to the first principles like our business is hard but it's not complicated yeah. there's a set of LPs and the very best ones have super long term time horizons and this is why some of the best fund of funds and certainly a lot of the endowments are sought as LPs because they think in terms of decades they're slow money people rather than fast money people and so the reason they invest in VC if they're doing it right is they don't really even look at it as an asset class. They look at it as a tiny fraction of their large endowment portfolio or their large fund funds portfolio that is super risky 
but that needs to have a higher return to be compensated for that higher risk. Yeah. And if they're doing it right, they, they also believe that there's a small fraction of firms that can deliver those outsized returns relative to the higher risk. Probably the biggest mistake that some LPs make is they get in a state of denial. They think that they can invest in firms that have no chance at getting those top 10 out 20 outcomes. And you're simply not going to make money if you invest in those firms. It just will not happen. Yeah. And so, um, but, but I think that, that um, you know, RLPs would be folks that you recognize as fairly typical of what you would see with Benchmark or Sequoia or some of the, you know, Kleiner Perkins or some of the other major firms, but they're investing in us for a different reason. You know, they, they believe that we have a different way to access those top 20 companies. But like, if you can't, if you, if you can't convince those people that you're going to get your share of those, like it's, it's hard for them to justify continuing with you. I guess my sort of, my question is you can imagine a world where there's too many middlemen, right? There, there's, Founders, there's scouts, there's VCs, there's fund to funds, there's fund to fund to fund to fund. Like you, you could, um, as the world sort of, um, you know, founders create the value. Uh, do you imagine a world where sort of some middlemen get cut out a little bit? Like why aren't, why isn't the capital just going straight to the founders? <laughs> um, how, how do you, how do you think about that? Well, I think if you're one of these endowments or if you're one of the top fund of funds, you probably think that Peter Bent. Peter Fenton at Benchmark is going to continue to do better at winning that lottery game than you would. And um, let's say, let's say you had amazing data. Well, if you're one of these endowments or one of these fund of funds, are you really going to find the next Jack Dorsey? And so you you might find the current Jack, like I want, can Jack Dorsey go to Stanford and and raise a bunch of money for, for, and maybe this is the promise of incubators or studios is, is founders going directly to LPs. Yeah. I'm just, you know, it's funny. Um, I think it has been surprisingly consistent that the best outcomes have raised money from the best firms, yep. no matter how many people are out there, no matter how much noise there is. And, and, you know, it's a little bit like like fish stories. You know, there's always somebody who caught a big fish that surprises you. Yeah. And, but what you find is that usually it doesn't happen as much as you think, and it's not as big of a fish as they said. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, that, that it is more of a story than you thought it was. So I, I think that, that there's still there's a huge amount of noise. But I think that what it takes to find the signal is surprisingly consistent. Yeah. And a lot of this is about just, um, you know, not, not, not lose sight of the signal in spite of the fact that the amount of noise is higher than I've ever seen in my yeah. life. And, and w- w- this capital comes from endowments. It comes from pension funds. It comes from uh, family offices. Are, are, are there ways that that sort of macro capital situation could change or be in different hands in the next decade or two that might change how, how venture is done? I think it could, but, but right now the, the, with interest rates so low, there's a lot of temptation to find yield throughout the world. Yeah. And so startups are a pretty appealing place to try. But, but having said that, the, the way this stuff ends badly is if a whole bunch of things go wrong at the same time. So like right now, SaaS public companies they're valued at like 10 times revenue the last time I looked. The way these things go south is not only do you have a recession, but the multiples go from 10 to 1 to 2 to 1. So like now your, your stock price is way down. Your employees all have their options underwater. The companies that you're selling to are delaying their purchasing decisions. And so not only are you values a function of your revenue at 2 to 1 rather than 10 to 1, but now your revenue isn't as high. Yeah. 
And so, you know, what happens when things correct is you have a chain reaction of a whole bunch of things multiplying badly at the same time. Yeah. And that's what people fa- always fail to anticipate is the impact that that has. Yeah. You know, the, the conventional wisdom would be like there's so much money in venture capital and public markets that even if there was a recession, that money's got to go somewhere. But that's what people don't understand. Yeah. And you know, somewhat related, uh, as software continues to eat the world, software is now getting into businesses that didn't have software before it, i.e. they're non-tech businesses. And uh, they have sort of different, uh, maybe blitz scaling doesn't work for something like WeWork or, or you know, things with not as good gross margins. How do you, you think, but obviously if you were a senior investor in WeWork, you you, you, you know you did okay if you cashed uh, well, out. Well, I'm not sure. If well, you didn't cash out, yeah, that's you true. got zero. <laughs> <laughs> if, if you cashed out. How do you, um, how, how do you think about investing in quote-unquote non-tech businesses? Yeah, so I, I wouldn't invest in anything non-tech. So, like, for example, some people wrongly believe that Lyft was just like what Taxi should have done because you could have just had a ride-hailing app. And what people don't understand is Lyft has an entire data supply chain that lets you locate cars on a map in real time and lets you locate riders on a map in real time. And data flows through the entire pipeline of the company. And you have data-enlightened employees doing A-B testing. And, I mean, it's very sophisticated. And so I do believe that you know, traditional vertically integrated corporate centric industries will be reimagined around software defined networks. I believe that. Uh, But that doesn't mean that I believe that a non-tech company is all of a sudden a tech company. So I, you know, I just basically believe that software defined network centric models will displace vertically integrated traditional models. And and the trick is to have a valid software defined network, which I, I would argue that WeWork has not yet made the case that they are. So you wouldn't have noticed in WeWork. Well, I, it's not like I was offered the chance, right. but but like, um, yeah. Well, it's it's not something that was on any thesis I had, but hard to know. Maybe the guy would have put the Shazam on me, and yeah. who knows, right? Who knows? <laughs> totally. It is. I mean, it is interesting. I'm seeing a lot of because I'm a community guy. I'm seeing a lot of these sort of social communities. Uh, sort of Soho House is valued at two billion. You know, Soho House for X. Um, you know, in person uh, communities for for old people. Um, and I, I keep thinking, what's you know, why is this venture scale? What What's the technology behind it that's, that's going to be? I don't know if you've, you've seen these sort of... Yeah, yeah, and I think most of them won't. But but the, the other thing is some of them will have good exits anyway. And people people will take the wrong lesson from that too. Um, so so I, I think that it's sort of like... that. That's why I think mental models are so important. It's like I think success in this business comes largely from understanding what type of game you play well and are repetitively successful at playing and I think it's okay to stray from your game, but you ought to be very clear when you're doing it, and you ought to be clear about why you're doing it. Right. And the wrong lesson is, hey, you can have a nice exit, but you won't have a great exit. Like, or it's like, okay, wow, I I didn't think Dollar Shave Club was going to be capital efficient, but they had a billion dollar exit, so my thesis was wrong. I need to go find the next Dollar Shave Club. And I'm and I'm like, no, um, you know, good for them, but but you know. Do I all of a sudden not believe the theory behind our thesis? Uh, if I don't, then that's the valid reason to think about the next Dollar Shave Club. Yeah. But it could just be that Unilever just didn't know what to do and they just overpaid, yeah. which is probably what happened. Right. So, so you're not investing in the Warby Parker for X. I mean, I wish him well, but it's not. You know, it's just not. I I haven't yet constructed a framework that where that makes sense for me to do in the seed yeah. round. So uh, we were talking about Balaji earlier. Balaji ha- ha- has been talking about how he believes long-term crypto is actually going to disrupt VC in, in some amounts. And, and one of the ways he talks about it is basically 
regulatory. You know, many industries are propped up by regulation. He says VC is no different in some ways. One is accredited investor who, who can and who cannot invest, who can and who cannot start a fund or because of solicitation, you can't advertise you're starting a fund. So it's pretty hard to fundraise unless you're pretty well connected. And then the cap table is limited to, you know, you can't have, you know, hundreds of people. It, it's pretty hard to get on a cap table unless you have some serious capital. Uh, how, how do you think about uh, regulations as it relates to VC or how potentially crypto can d- disrupt, uh, disrupt VC? Obviously, there's this ICO has had a moment in the sun, and who knows if something like that will exist in another form. Here's the thing that I think is interesting about all this crowdfunding stuff. So a lot of people say, okay, we should make it so that more and more people can invest in startups. And I'm like, okay, let's think that through. We already know there's a world where there's a tiny number of startups that end up really making money for investors. And so the, the problem is not that we don't have a mo- enough money to invest in those companies. Yeah. So what, what are the odds that a nor- the quote, quote, normal person with no information advantage, with no access advantage, with no brand is going to get into one of those companies? I would argue it's pretty low. Right. So I think so. I think that most of the crowdfunding stuff is an invitation to lose money, which that's up to them to do. To me, the more interesting question is, why aren't there more valuable assets to invest in? Yeah. So, like, for example, um, would would I be interested in owning a share of uh, a second year Stanford MBA student? Maybe. And they might be interested in selling it to me if uh, they wanted to have certain kind of liquidity early in life without sacrificing their long term. So like, I think it's kind of interesting to think about um, what, what things in the world are valuable and productive that the markets have no way to make a market for right now. Yeah. And, and so like, I think that that's where the, the unlocked value is more than it is, hey, let's have anybody in the world who wants to invest in startups. That's interesting. I, I think in his different way of, or I frame it a different way, which is, well, w- one problem we have is obviously this huge, uh, well, Techlash TBD, if it's manufactured by journalists or, or how real it is, but I wonder if a way to improve it would be uh, giving people, or ideally, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of people would have had equity in, in Facebook or hundreds of thousands or, or millions rather than get it on the back end via taxes. And and when it's taxes, it sort of zero sum, hey, you made money, now it's mine. Whether When it's equity, when it's on the front end, it's like, oh, let's make this as big as it, as it can be because we're all going to get rich because of it. And I think uh, that's where you know, crypto with tokens can potentially present a legal or, or mechanistic way to give uh, you know, millions of people you know, little bits of equity in your, in your startup. Yeah, and, and I just don't know why in the end Okay, so I'm Mark Zuckerberg, and I've got a choice to take ten million dollars from Jim Breyer. Well, I think you do both. I, th- I think you still take you, you take Benchmark, you take Jim Breyer or whoever it was, Benchmark Excel. Um, but you, uh, hey, you're trying to disrupt Mark Zuckerberg. You're trying to make the next Facebook. You need to break network effects, and you give you know little bits of you know ten dollars of equity to you know thousands of people. And, and I think that the the problem that some people have in formulating those arguments is that the very best startups quickly are able to raise money at will from whoever they want to raise it from. And so a value proposition that says, Hey, guess what? I'm going to let a whole bunch of people that you've never met or heard of, uh, invest in this company. Well, you can raise money at will. And so you've got to decide who you want to raise money from. Do you want to raise money from those people? Like, do they understand the risk they're taking when they invest in a startup? Like what happens if they call you angry because the stock goes down someday or they can't sell it. And so, um, 
I'm, I'm more interested in kind of saying, hey, there's a set of things we take for granted, like shares in a company or bonds or stocks or um, uh, real estate investment trusts. Why, why can't we make every productive asset in the world something that I can buy a fractional share in? Uh, that's, that's what I would be more interested in using crypto for. Yeah. And then the other thing I'd be interested in using crypto for would be creating businesses that um, need to overcome a cold start network effect yeah. from day one. But, but like I, I generally look at new trends through the lens of what new abundance does it create rather than what middleman does it that exists does it replace? Yeah. Clearbank is a pretty interesting innovation. And some people are saying that uh, you know, venture should go back to its roots, which is funding technology risk. Um, and different forms of capital should you know, fund uh, your you know, marketing spend or things like that. H- how do you think about that? Yeah, in general, I'm I'm a big believer that um, we're looking for these exponential change events, and so uh, I I I like ideas where you can light a forest fire with just a match, and I think that on some level, the the true measure of the disruptive power of an idea is the degree to which it can make change without throwing money at it. Now there are some companies where you can have a logical real growth strategy that involves raising a lot of money, like Lyft raised a lot of money, so did Okta. So um, I think that there are times when gro- growth mode requires a lot of capital. Usually it's because the, the whole market is energized to want your product, and if you don't satisfy the needs of the market, your competitors will or incumbents will. But for the most part, I'm, I believe that capital efficiency is a proxy for how novel the idea was. Right. I'm, I'm curious how you think about, uh, going back to fund construction, uh, follow-ons and the percentage of, of first check to follow-on because what we're seeing at sort of the, the, the path from pre-seed to, to seed is that the price is rising faster than the company has been de-risked. And yeah. so we're, we're, we're thinking, hey, put more and more uh, upfront. Um, how do you how do you think about that? Yeah, the way I look at it is, every investor has to ask, how do I get paid for the risk I take? The way Floodgate believes it gets paid for the risk it takes is we take that risk before the Series A guys, and so now we have to take smart risks, or otherwise we'll just lose our money. But we need to we need to take that risk when we're not competing with those guys. Um, if your benchmark or Sequoia or Excel or Greylock or these other folks the way you might think about risk is different because now you're looking at early signals of product market fit or success metrics or just demonstrable proofs of early growth. But in the end, you have to figure out how do you convert that insight that you have and the access that you have to those companies into getting paid for the risk you take. Now, so so the reason that we invest more of it up front is because that's the only time when our money is competitively advantaged. There's, there's only one other time, and that is if the company starts succeeding at pro rata rights and pro rata rights are a right. That's, that's, a, that's dollars you can invest that other people can't invest. But for the most part, I think that seed funds are particularly bad about this. I think if you went to most funds and said, show me the return on investment of your follow-on dollars compared to the return on investment of your first checks, follow-on investing has been scandalously bad. Like if I were if I were the LPs, I would be like starting to put more pressure on firms to quantify 
their follow-on dollar returns versus their upfront dollar returns. Because like every dollar is a dollar. If you're an LP, that, that dollar you spent, regardless how you spent it, it's yeah. it's either gets a return or it's gone. Right. And if you're putting, you know, one third of your bets at Series A uh, and two thirds follow-on at Series B, you're you're basically a Series B firm. Correct. And, and you're a Series B firm with low ownership. Yes. And so, and so, like, great, that's fine. But, like, who are the very best Series B firms in the world and what, yeah. what talents and capabilities have they built and how do they compare to yours? Yeah. Eh, you know, <laughs> you know, hey, it's, some people may want to make that bet. That's up to them. Uh, is there a meaningful uh, difference between thinking about the world in terms of ownership versus thinking about it in terms of, you know, multiples or probability-weighted multiples? Or is that sort of pedantic? Because most people sort of view it in an ownership perspective. Well, I think that there's a there, there's there's a relationship. So the, the way I look at it is, uh, if you're going to have a successful fund, let's let's imagine you want to have a three x fund. If you want a three x fund, your best exit because of the power law has to return one point five x the fund in profits by itself. And so you could get there a couple of ways. You can own a small fraction of a really huge outcome or a big fraction of a not as big outcome. But the, but the reason that ownership matters is at the limit, right? If you have a $500 million fund and you want to be a 3X fund, your biggest exit has to return $750 million in profit. So you own 10% of $7.5 billion, 5% of $15 billion. There, there are ownership and, and outcome dynamics that must be present for your fund to, to achieve that hurdle. And so the bigger your fund gets, the more you simply have to care about ownership. You know, not caring about ownership just isn't an option anymore. And so is there a way by which, you, like, what do you advise, let's say operator comes to you and says, hey, my fund one is 3 million, 5 million, 1 million, and fund three, I, I want it to be 50 million. You know, I, I want to have converted and I want to transition into the next, the next floodgate. Um, you know, there can only be so many floodgates and floodgates not going anywhere. Are there, what are you sort of advising? Is it, because basically you go to LPs and, and other firms who've been around and say, I've done this before, I will do it again. For, for people who haven't done it before and, and even by fund three are, aren't likely to have, you know, a, a ton of obvious track record. What, what is important for them to prove out? Like, because what I'm trying to assert is it doesn't seem that there are that many strategies or legible strategies for getting in the top 20 companies other than I've done it before. Or um, h- how do you sort of think about yeah, well, it's it's funny because I don't. Um, if if some of these folks create the next great seed fund, God bless them, right? God bless America. I'm, I'm I'm I got no problem with that, and I'm I'm really grateful when I when I first started to get involved in venture, people like Bruce Dunleavy introduced me to Phil Horsley at Horsley Bridge, and he didn't have to do that. And and um, I I kind of the way I look at it is a little less macro. There are certain individuals where I think if they were successful, it would be a better ecosystem. And so I just do the best I can to be one of the, one of the good guys that helps. And, and, um, and I just expect that karma will work its way. And if it doesn't, then that, that's okay too, because entrepreneurs will still be better off. Yeah. So I don't, um, but, but where they'll go and whether they become a fund that competes with ours or whatever, I don't think about that too much. Because I figure if, if they're talented and good for the ecosystem, they're they're going to find their path to the light regardless, and yeah. so we might as well be friends and me totally. me look at them as a fact rather than a threat. Totally, and and yeah. and I've talked to a number of them who've said that you've uh, you've been immensely immensely helpful. Um, so if you're if you're raising a, 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 a if you're a micro GP and you have great deal flow, do uh, do work with work with Mike. 
the I want to close with some sort of mental models around company building or venture investing that you believe perhaps are are no longer true or not as true as they once were because maybe market dynamics have shifted. What, what question I have, you know, uh, Zach Cantor going back said uh, once once the book has been written about it, it's too late or things have changed. And so blitz scaling is is his, is his example of uh, that that works for things like LinkedIn, Facebook, things with immensely high gross margin businesses, maybe doesn't work for WeWork and maybe not even Uber. Um, I'm curious if you have a take on, on blitz scaling, but then broadly um, startup tropes that uh, or philosophies that, that were true that are maybe not as true today. Well, so I look at blitz scaling as a type of a growth strategy, right? So like when you're, when you're, when you're startup on the way of becoming a company, you hack insights, then value, then growth. And then someday you become a company that's hopefully profitable. So blitzscaling is a certain edge case of growth. And, and blitzscaling basically says there are certain situations where Jeffrey Moore's technology adoption life cycle is not as relevant. So, so in most markets, you have early adopter customers. They try your product. They get value from it. They convince pragmatist buyers across the chasm. You go to the mainstream. But it takes time. It just takes time for people to like new things. But like with Lyft, the second people tried it, they're like, I'm done with taxis. And, and so we got in this situation where Travis Kalanick was going to raise crazy amounts of money. He was going to come after us with UberX. Everybody who was exposed to Lyft immediately said, this is a game changer. And so we knew in a situation like that, the market will be satisfied. And so you just have to ask, is it going to be us that does it or somebody else? And so in those cases, and I think this is what Reed's getting at, in those cases, it's irrational not to try to cover the whole market. And, and you have to blitz scale in the same way that metaphorically the Germans blitzkrieged in World War II, right? You, the supply chains are more narrow as the tanks go forward faster. And you're trying to overwhelm the enemy through speed and agility in your growth. And sometimes you're going to do some things inefficient at the edge to achieve that growth. But, but the larger goal of capturing the most meaningful share of the market is so overwhelmingly dominant compared to all other goals yeah. that it's worth doing that. Yeah. So like, do I believe that every startup in Silicon Valley that it's capital efficient, high margin should blitz scale? No, I don't. I think most should go through the technology adoption life cycle. But I think there are times where it goes from zero to main street. And it's like the question is going to be, who gets it? Is it you or the other guy? Yeah. Okta had to go through this too in identity management. The market got energized to the idea that everybody needed identity management for the cloud. question was, is it going to be Okta or Microsoft? Yeah. And Microsoft has worldwide distribution. And so you've got to decide to grow at hyperwarp speed or Microsoft just outmuscle you. Does anything come to mind in terms of things that were once true but no longer true or in famous startup tropes? You know, the, the funny thing to me is how true the fundamental lessons have remained. Um, most of the stuff that people are saying isn't true are untrue things where people are saying there's a new truth. Yeah. And I, I think fundamentally, you know, a startup is all about harnessing exponential change to create a unique novel value proposition that people are desperate for that changes people's point of view and it grows at a hyperwarp speed and uh and it's done by people who live in the future and, and like i think that it's been remarkably true for remarkably long yeah and when i've spun my wheels or gotten off track it's when i believed oh my business has somehow changed from that two, two last uh questions one is you know i'm obsessed with 
how to create more entrepreneurs, reducing the barriers to entrepreneurship. One is this thing we've been talking about, which is VCs have portfolio diversification, founders don't. Is there a way to give founders some diverse portfolios, either by you know making them scouts or by founder pooling? You know, um, Keith or Boy came after me and he said that's uh, a terrible idea, uh, and you know, Keith are friends. But uh, founders are um, you need to be all in, um, and if they have you know diversification, maybe they won't be all in. I'm curious what you think about that sort of founder diversification or founder pooling idea. Uh, I, I'm more on Keith's side. Uh, and then I get the other thing. I don't know if Keith said this, but I remember when I was at Motive, uh, one of our venture firms said, hey, we're coming up with this idea to pool shares among all the firms of the portfolio. Would you like to do that? And maybe we were arrogant, but we're like, why would I want anybody's shares but our shares, right? And, and those, are, those are the founders you want to back. And so, like, here's the thing. Like, too many people, I believe, are now thinking of being a founder is like a career move. And the types of founders I like are people who think like Alex Honnold when he was climbing Yosemite El Cap without a rope. And they're doing it not just, they're doing it because they are obsessed with doing it. Yeah. And they're, they're not doing it because it's a stop along the way on their career or they're, they're just looking to have that experience. It's like, and, and there's no shortcuts to hack your way up it. There's like, in order to climb it without a rope, you have to climb it hundreds of times with a rope. Yeah. You have to know every nook and cranny of that rock. And the great founders don't view that as a chore because they're obsessed with their passion. Yeah. And they, they, they want to understand something in a, in a level of depth that nobody's ever understood it before. And I guess my, my premise in terms of wanting to reduce the barriers to entrepreneurship is because I think sort of maybe there's some great founders out there who accidentally find themselves into it uh, and if the barriers were higher then they wouldn't have accidentally found themselves into running a successful the way that some ac people accidentally find themselves in Afghanistan <laughs> and and are successful successful there perhaps do you dispute that premise because uh, Keith Raboy would dispute the premise he would say no no we want the barriers high so that you know the great people separate themselves I, I agree with Keith so I I believe that that uh entrepreneurship is more democratized today than ever yes. and it will only continue to do that what, what is still rare and valuable is people who want to achieve true greatness. Yeah. And uh, I just don't think that's going to change. And I think that those are the people that animate the companies of tomorrow that are going to be amazing. And, uh, you know, greatness isn't something that happens to you. It's a decision. And I just think that, that um, the decision to be great trumps all, right, yeah. it, it, as it comes to this. Uh, you have mental models for what makes a great founder or founding team. Do you have any mental models or frameworks for what makes a great investor? Um, as, as you know, when Benchmark looks to hire a GPU and Flowgate looks to hire another investor, is there anything that you're sort of a, have a unique take on? The best investors I've known are as interested in the intellectual content of what it takes to be a great investor as product people are in building a great product, right? And so the, the, the number one worry I had when I started investing after being an entrepreneur was product fun was done. You know, I had to get ready to have a new kind of fun. Yeah. And I had to become intellectually curious and competitive about a whole new set of things. And so you look at guys like, say, Charlie Munger, who's Warren Buffett, Buffett's investment partner. The thing that he says is that without fail, the very best investors, regardless of what their strategy is or what they invest in, are incredibly well-read, super curious, and, and they're obsessed in the field of investing as Mark Andreessen was in building the Mosaic browser at the University of Illinois, right? And it's like, if you're ever gonna be truly great, 
I, I think that, that you have to have that passion for it. My guest today has been Mike Maples. Uh, the podcast is Starting Greatness. Uh, take, a, take a listen. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Eric. It was great to see you.